sunshiny morning for some warm temps today, melt some of that stuff. We pray that you come, Holy Spirit, and if there's any cold or hardening places in our hearts, come and melt those with the power of your grace and your mercy. Jesus, draw us to you, Lord. Your word's alive and active. It's perfect truth. We want to grow in the understanding of it, and not just with our minds, Father. We want to grow deeper in love, fellowship, and glad obedience with you. So lead us and guide us into your word now, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All righty, chapter 13. We got down to the number, the mark of the beast, and so forth. We'll get to the number today. Let's start in verse 14 just to kind of get our traction going again. Here's described, it's the middle of describing the uh, activities of the false prophet who will be pointing everybody's uh, focus to the Antichrist and demanding and commanding worship of. Because of the signs he was given power to do, this false prophet's going to do miracles. On behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Um, is this one of the more frustrating things in life? When you're talking with somebody, communicating with somebody, or people in leadership and whatever, when they don't... When they don't understand truth, and when they aren't functioning based on truth, to me that's one of the most frustrating things in life. And so, boy, it's going to be a frustrating time for the people of God in that regard. Uh, most of the world is going to go off into deception and think the Antichrist is the coolest thing ever. And we're going to be saying the opposite. We're going to be saying, no, he's the right hand hand of the devil. And He ordered them, the inhabitants of the earth, to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image. So the false prophet is given power to give breath. That's the same word for spirit or life. Depends on the context, kind of how you use it. It's a challenge to know how to use that here, right? But as you look at the whole thing, it looks like the, the um, false prophet given power to give life to the image of the first beast so that it could speak. So this image, whether it's a statue, one statue that the whole world is commanded about our worship, or whether it's an image that every single one of us has in our homes, however that works out, uh, it's going to be alive, it can speak, it's going to cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. So this is obviously life and death stuff. This isn't, you know, you have to kiss my ring or you spend five days in jail kind of stuff. This is life and death. Verse 16. The false prophet also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark. Now we talk a lot about, you know, what might that look like? How could it function, so forth and so on. Um, but let's go, there's just a comma there. Let's go on with the rest of what it says about this mark. So verse 17, so no one could buy or sell, sell unless he had the mark 
which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So we talked about, you know, it could be a chip, all these different kinds of things, but I think when we get into that kind of nitty-gritty stuff, I think we miss the bigger picture. Here's the bigger picture. The mark is the name of the Antichrist or the number of his name. It's going to indicate him directly. And it could be his name. So I got I finally got to thinking about that. I was like, well, so are people going to put Fred or Mario or I don't know who, what, who knows what his given name is going to be? Are they going to put, I'm for Fred, on their forehead? What what name? Remember, what what's he doing when midpoint, there's war in heaven, um, Satan loses, he and his angel followers are cast down to the earth. That's when the Satan is like, all right, we're going full tilt here. This is our last shot. He gives all of his power and authority to the Antichrist, empowers him to, to be the one that the whole world loves and to deceive and follow. Okay? But what does the Antichrist do when he steps into the, the temple at the midpoint of the seven years? What does the Antichrist do with his mouth? He starts declaring what kind of stuff? Blasphemies. And the main point of blasphemies are, is, blasphemies plural, are, I'm actually God, worship me, or you're going to die. So if, if his whole blasphemy thing is about worship me, I am God, I'm, I'm really what he finally came to me. like, I'm wondering if he's going to declare himself. He's revealing his identity, right? It's part of what his revelation going to be. I am Yahweh, I am Messiah, I don't know, I am God Most High, I don't know what language he's going to use, he's not even going to keep, but I wonder if he might declare a name for himself. So the, the Roman Caesars did this a lot, uh, the Greek kings did this a lot where they gave themselves names, that, that names that meant God Most High. Should be the one that uh, sacrificed pigs in the temple before Jesus came to do his own reign. And that's what Hanukkah is all about the cleansing of the temple and so forth. Ah, it's game to Yeah, Antiochus Epiphanes, thank you, which means God most high. That's, that's what he named himself. So it could easily be something along those lines. And there, what do we like to do now nowadays with uh, famous people? We love to, when they have great big long names, we do the initials. So AOC, <laughs> you know, um, whatever. So, and some people are going to be in love with and enamored by and amazed by the Antichrist. I think some people are going to simply put the like the initials of his name on their forehead, proudly, gladly. Will it be barcode and chip and all those kinds of things you can use for certainly possible. But the main thing, and this is why people that are asking me a while back, people are like, well, is the vaccine the mark of the beast? Well, they're, they're making us get the vaccine. Is that, is that the 666? I'm like, well, it could be like, it could be an awful lot like that. But what is taking the mark here? It's an act of, an act of worship. And it's, it's his name in some form or fashion 
or a number that everybody knows represents him, and it's on my forehead or it's on my hand, that's an act of worship. And what have we seen a lot in Revelation throughout the Bible? 144,000, we're going to look at them in a little bit. Okay, God, God sealed them on their foreheads. We see a lot of this. Uh, it matters who you belong to. Amen? Yeah. How many different choices are there for your eternity and who you belong to? You got two. Two choices. Either God or the devil. Most people don't realize that they're, that's the situation. But um, that's what Revelation is all about because we're coming to the end of human history and there's two destinations. And who you belong to is what matters. So we're seeing that a lot. We're going to go really in deeply into that here in a little bit in chapter 14. So that's through verse 17, the name of the beast or the number of his name. Any other comments or questions on that whole mark? And I, this is another thing where some, some Christians get really... Um, Go, go bonkers over trying to nail this thing down and how it's going to be and how it's going to function. I'm like, don't even worry about it. Um, by the time we get to the midpoint of the seven years and he goes into the temple and announces this thing, we're going to know. We're going to know exactly what's going on. It's not going to be confusion or anything for us. It's going to be super clear and super clear for the whole world. We're going to find that out in chapter 14. God's going to send angels to tell the whole world what's going on, so nobody's taken by surprise. Okay, let's go on to verse 18 then. I love this because we go through the previous two verses and just, our heads start to hurt, you know, and we start, uh, and then it says, this calls for wisdom. How does that make you feel when you hear that? I'm always kind of like, I don't have enough wisdom. <laughs> I'm not figuring this out yet. But it's calls for wisdom. Where do we go when we need wisdom? Humble ourselves and we God for this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is six hundred and sixty-six. So, what does this lead to? If you, if you deep dive into number six six six, what kind of stuff does that lead? Internet reading, or here's some interesting guy on AM radio on this topic, or something. I heard of numerology. It's all about everything is about numbers. Everything is boiled down to numbers. Numbers can tell you the future, so forth and so on. I was just visiting with a gal who's really on the phone, really can trouble for her adult son. He's gone off the cliff in numerology. So he's, he's confident that he can use numerology to tell him the day of his death. He's not that far off from that. Yeah. So everything has to do with numbers. And so every day, all the time, he's, he's always looking for numbers and for coincidences and things to line up and to tell him things. Um, it's, a, it's a life of bondage. So there are there are folks who've gone off the deep end and they're trying to nail the six and six down. So all through history, people have given numerical values to alphabet letters and so forth, and they've said, 
This Pope is the Antichrist because his name adds up to 666. People have been doing that for, for 2,000 years. And the list of people whose names add to 666 is like this long. So is that helpful for us? Is that what God wanted us to do? That's not helping us out. So I think part of the wisdom is kick back, study the scriptures, know and love Jesus, and he will reveal things in the time that they need to be revealed. But why 666? Why not 333-555-111? What would God's perfect number be, maybe, if you expressed it in three digits? Yeah, I would I would guess probably 777, because 7 is God's favorite perfect number of completion, and it's all over Revelation. 7 is everywhere in Revelation. And then if you did it three times, when, when Hebrews say something three times in a row, what are they declaring? like this into infinity. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's holy into infinity. 777, yeah. I would I would guess that that would be God's number. So what does 666 tell us? Almost. <laughs> I like that. Almost God. Right? So close. I want to be God. Um, I copy everything and try to be like God. So what day of creation was Adam, were Adam and Eve made on? So when it says it's it's a man's number, his number is 666. Um, historically, all through the 2,000 years since this was written, now it's more like 1,900. Um, it's always been understood that this is Man's number. So if 777 is God, 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 666 is man, man, man. So it's, 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 here's the insight, right? The whole world's going to put 666 in some fashion or other on their foreheads and on their hands. And the Antichrist is going to be telling them that that means I am God, worship me. But the number, the name itself, declares to you and me who know the truth of Scripture, tells us what? The Antichrist is a man. And if you want to worship a human being, a man, it's not going to get you far. So one commentator I really enjoyed it. Years and years ago, I, I read this, so I wrote it in my Bible. 666 means not God, not God, not God. Hmm. Uh, and then he also called it the unholy trinity. <laughs> I like as well. The unholy trinity is Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Copies everything. Or attempts to. Okay? Any other comments or questions through 1318? Does anybody know a believer who is really um, obsessed with the 666 and identifying the Antichrist? Anybody Seems like when I was okay. Uh, seems like when I was in college, which is a long time ago now, really, really big. People were going nuts trying to nail down who it was and so forth. So, yeah, there's a little bit stirring up again now with Putin and all the stuff he's up to, and you know he's he's ruling um, Magog, the area that talks about where the armies are going to come from at the end against Israel. 
talk about uh, food. I don't know that he lines up. Yeah. So if we can go out of that, let's not. Let's do a couple things illustration-wise. Let's do mine, maybe. For, um, yeah, next, there we go. So we'll finish this out. Uh, false prophet, horns like a little lamb, so it looks fuzzy and cuddly and not dangerous, but he's got a mouth like a dragon. And so what, is, what does he command? Worship the beast, the Antichrist, make an image, and then he gives breath, life, to the images. And the image itself commands the people of the earth, worship the Antichrist or die. And then he, he does miracles. He calls down fire from heaven, chapter 13 says, and legitimately does that and blows people away and so deceives them to believe that he is like God. And then the command to take the mark, 666, it's about money, being able to buy and sell, and all that kind of stuff. That's the pressure point for taking the mark. A lot of people are going to take it willingly, gladly. Some are going to need encouragement to take the mark. So that's the pressure there. You can't buy groceries, you can't buy gas, even though it's $10 a gallon. else to 13 then. Let's go to the timeline and see what we have. You're pulling out, so that one I can't read. <laughs> this hopefully represents what you've got in front of you there. Let's see, chapter 13, Scott. Okay. So chapter 13, if you follow this, this line across the illustration, it's the Antichrist and his eighth beast empire. There's the uh, horns, the crowns, and so forth that we heard described earlier. And at the midpoint, there, we'll get to the angels here in a little bit. But at the midpoint is where he reveals his identity and goes after Israel and so forth. This is also where um, the command is make an image, worship it. So right here is a representation of the demonic, you know, giving life to the image. If it's, if it's images in every household around the planet, uh, there's going to be demons, spirits attached to that. So each image will have life. So right here it's got 666, that's the mark. And if you follow it down, it's, it's you know, ghost-like, demonic. So the demonic world control, that's, that's from... Um, Von Kampen. Von Kampen believed that um, that you make an image, it, it can be interpreted in the plural form. Von Kampen believed that every household was supposed to make an image of the Antichrist and have it there. And each each image in each household is going to be um, energized, given life, have a demon attached to it. That's how it can speak. That's how it can enforce obedience and stuff. So that's why he has that fairly dramatic the demonic world control. I think that's about it for chapter 13. Okay. So 13 was some tough sledding. The beast, the ten horns, seven heads, all that stuff. Revealing some things about the Antichrist's world empire at the end. Revealing.
revealing an awful lot about what his attitude's going to be like at the midpoint. Boy, after he loses that battle in heaven, he's going to come down with serious attitude. The Bible says he's going to be furious. Do everything he can to destroy followers of God. And then we get introduced to the false prophet there. So, lots of uh, lots of evil unleashed in every way, shape, and form here in chapter 13. In a lot of ways, not my favorite chapter. But needful and helpful. Maybe one fourteen. Okay, 14 verse 1. Then I look, you know, to me, every time John says that, our Western ears, we, we hear chronology. We hear, he says, then I look, like, okay, that's done. Now we're going forward in time. No, <laughs> not in Revelation. When he says, then I look, what I really think he's telling us is, okay, that vision came to its conclusion. And this was about the midpoint of all the stuff the Antichrist is doing. Then I looked, and it might be the same time, it might be previous in time, might be after, but it just means, okay, now we're done looking at that um, chapter. This is a new chapter. We'll see when it is. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked. There before me was the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus himself. Standing on Mount Zion. Where's that? That's Jerusalem itself. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their where? Foreheads. What were we just talking about? Foreheads. A few verses before. 666. And that that's, that's the name of the Antichrist. And if you, you know, you put that on there, it's an act of worship and so forth. We'll see in a little bit that that's, that's your eternal death sentence. If you take the mark of the Antichrist, you go to hell and there's no changing that. So huge, huge stuff. So right after that, in chapter 13, we have this very first piece. And these folks have something. What's written on their foreheads? Two names. Whose names? Yep, Jesus the Lamb and, and the Father's name. Really interesting. So what does that mean? If you have the Father's name and Jesus' name written on your forehead, what does that say about you? You belong to him. You are his possession. What was the purchase price for him to have you as his possession? The blood of Jesus. Okay, not silver or gold, the blood of Jesus. Now, have we seen or heard about this 144,000 group before? Oh, we sure have. What have they been up to? Right. But we, got, we have to go back and get freshened up on these folks to make sense of this. And we're going to find this is fascinating. So I think it was Kellen, maybe this is a couple months ago, before, that asked, like, so, so are they saved right now when they get sealed and stuff? Let's, let's go back to that question because I think we might get an answer here. Okay? So chapter 7, uh, beginning verse 2. John writes there, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land of the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a what? Seal on their foreheads of the servants of our God. 
Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So it does say sealed on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So that sounds encouraging. Are they saved in that moment? Maybe. Um, but at this point, they're sealed with God's seal. Now, let's go back to chapter 14. Does it mention seal on their forehead now? No, what does it literally say is on their forehead now? Name of Jesus and the Father. Now, I don't want to go too far with this, but it feels to me. What does it sound like it feels to us? The, the, the question about their salvation. Are they saved when they're first sealed? Maybe. Are they for sure sealed now? For sure saved. Sure, they were sealed. We don't know for sure about salvation. They for sure are saved now because they have the name of Jesus and the Father on their foreheads. So the, the big question kind of is okay, when, right? When is this? When is this happening? Therefore, I looked, then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. When does this happen? With him, the 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. So what's the sound that we're hearing? Is it the voice of God roaring some command or something? No, it's musical. Right? What else? Yes. Sounds of heaven. It's musical. A harpist and the, the wording in the Greek is I don't want to say fuzzy, but it kind of means the harpists are singing as they play their harps. So it's a musical, it's a loud, powerful, musical thing that's happening. Verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne. Where's that? That's in heaven. And before the four living creatures and the elders, and where are they at? They're in heaven around the throne of God. It says, no one could learn the song. Who's singing the song up there? The harpist sounds like. Sounds like it must be an angelic choir. It says, no one could learn the song except the 144,000. Who, or what tense is this, who had been redeemed. So it's past tense. It's been accomplished. Had been redeemed from the earth. Come back to stuff, and I'm just trying to answer this. When is this question? Verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, they are blameless. Okay, so give me some ideas on when is this occurring? When is Jesus? Appearing on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, with the 144,000, and they're learning this new song. When do you think this is happening? Okay, when he comes back to rule and reign, because he's, he's got boots on the ground here, doesn't he? He literally has his feet on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Okay, good. So when would that be? Uh, start of the seven years, midpoint, or end of the seven years? Yeah. End of the seven years. 
right? Coming to reign. We've seen that couple chapters back when it says boom now now Christ has power and has rule and authority this is that moment and so it's in chapter 12 that sure <coughs> yes right he is now here yeah so it's this moment <coughs> is at the end of the seven years Here's the midpoint. Here's the beginning of the seven years, the, the contract with peace for Israel. Here's the midpoint. Rapture later on. Here's the end of the seven years. And then there's 30 days and 45 days tacked on. There's things to accomplish in the time period. But here's, on this uh, timeline, here's Mount Zion kind of represented the hill. And is Jesus on there? So it, it's hard to, to you see these little these uh, golden dots here. What they're trying to do is they're trying to say all this stuff, boom, happens here at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. So if we went back and looked again at the seventh trumpet, we'd see when the seventh trumpet is blown, that's when the all the angels declare, now Christ has come to rule and reign upon the earth. So uh, this is the moment that we're talking about. Uh, 144,000, how long have they been a group of 144,000? When were they sealed? That was at the midpoint. Oops. Okay, so at the midpoint, why did they need to be uh, sealed at the midpoint? Anybody remember? So God says, you okay, Hold those four angels back. First, we have to seal the 144,000 because what's about to happen? Somebody's wrath is about to be poured out. Oh, Satan's wrath is back here, right? And then we get taken out in the rapture, and then God's wrath is poured out. So the 144,000 are sealed here and protected because God's wrath is going to be poured out. God doesn't want the 144,000 to be impacted by all those terrible violence. So they have lived through the six trumpets, all of God's wrath. They lived through it. They've been protected, uh, probably out in that uh, safe zone. I don't throw a bunch of stuff together. So, uh, remember a couple Sundays ago, Satan loses the, the war in heaven, gets cast down. He's furious. The first thing he does is he tries to go after and destroy Israel, Right? But God sends Israel, the 144,000 probably, maybe a few others, sends them off into the wilderness to a place of safety and protection that's prepared for them. The devil tries to destroy that group, fleeing from him with a flood. Remember the dragon with the water coming out of his mouth? Mark chapter 8, verse 9. Okay? Satan tries to destroy Israel with a flood. God says, ah, not on my watch. And he opens up the earth and swallows the water, protects them. So then Satan knows how oh, he's going to protect those people. I can't. That's when he comes after us. And the Gentile believers. We're scattered all over the planet, so forth and so on. Um, so the 144,000 are sealed here. They live through 
six trumpets without being harmed by them. Satan tries to kill them, but they're off in the wilderness in a safe place. And for some months, and in this moment, Jesus apparently boots on the ground to their hiding place in the wilderness, and then Jesus walks and leads them to Jerusalem to take over Jerusalem authority on the earth. They come, they follow him to Jerusalem. Come with them. That's a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of threads to tie together, right? Whole lot of threads to tie together. Comments, questions. So I'm sorry. I kept pointing here, saying they were they were sealed here. They were sealed at the midpoint. This this it should be back here, right? The 144,000 were sealed at the midpoint. Here, um, somewhere along the line, they get saved, and the name of Jesus and the Father is applied to their foreheads. So when this stuff is happening, God's wrath is coming down. Jesus comes. They are saved for sure. Where exactly that salvation happens along the line, I'm not perfectly sure. I'm getting ahead of myself and this court didn't deal with the idea. Because of the hundred and forty four thousand who have been redeemed from the earth, these are those who did not defile themselves with them, did not lie, following them wherever you go. Describing these folks. Okay? So, are we clear on when this happens? This is uh, at the end of the seven years, at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. This is when Jesus leads them up to Jerusalem and he's declaring, um, I'm in charge, not just of Jerusalem, Israel, I'm in charge of the earth now. That transition has happened. This is where it brings on Armageddon and everything else. The, the battle and final battle because when Jesus comes in, into Jerusalem and boots on the ground and with 144,000 and says I'm in charge now what's the, what's the devil and the Antichrist have to do they got to bring all the forces they can muster and bring it to Jerusalem and try and take him out and that's why we get the final battle Armageddon and they wrap this thing up they got a beautiful bow oh, it's beautiful it's going to be messy see that later in chapter 14. Okay, good. So let's go back to the harpists are playing, verse 3. They sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one can learn the song except the underfoot, but how, how come just them? How come we don't get to sing that song? What's special about these people? They're Jews. Yeah. 
probably sing it in Hebrew. They're Jews and they're saved. They're, they're God's sovereignly chosen, cherished ones. And he finally, a whole bunch of Jews get saved. You know, all this time it's been here and there and here and there. Finally, a whole bunch of them get no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So let's get into these details in verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Now I know, I don't want to try to dig myself a hole here. In general, uh, I've said we're, we're going to take the Bible to be literal, unless it tells us to take it differently, right, in the passage, or unless it's really clear. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think this is to be taken literally. Um, I did some really deep diving on this, and, and almost, which is very unusual for Revelation, almost everybody agrees that this is not physical, um, never having sex. But otherwise, you have to say these are 144,000 single people who never had relations, kept themselves chaste and pure. That's possible. But then that excludes anybody. Nobody who was married could be part of this 144,000 group. Um, there's a lot of different angles to approach it. But this is, I would say, almost assuredly, it's talking about spiritual purity, which is often described in, in biblical terms, in terms of sexual purity. So if you go through the book of Hosea, that whole prophetic book, right? God had Hosea marry a prostitute. And that whole book is about God, Israel is, is acting like a prostitute. Israel is going off, chasing off and worshiping all kinds of other gods and committing adultery, spiritual adultery with all kinds of other gods. And God keeps calling her back and calling her back and forgiving her and washing her clean and trying to get her to stay home where she belongs. So it's not just that prophet, but all through the Old Testament, Jesus makes this reference to So adultery and so forth, you got to be on your toes when that's brought up, because sometimes it's about the physical immorality, certainly, but it's often about the spiritual immorality, not worshiping the one true God. So in this situation, I'm not just saying because almost everybody agrees that makes it what it is, but, um, right, because some people say uh, the consensus of science is Science on climate change is not close. They're saying it's all agreed upon. You're like, no, it's not. But um, so I can't just say almost every Bible scholar thinks this is spiritual adultery, and therefore it busted his soul. But boy, when you look at all the angles, I think it pretty much has to be. So let's look at it from that perspective. Verse four: These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They did not worship. Demons, idols, the Antichrist, any of these other world religions or possibilities. They kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They are devoted to him. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God, the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So blameless doesn't mean perfect and never sin. It means in right and righteous relationship with God. 
So just last Sunday, uh, we were looked at the call of Nathaniel, right? He was sitting under the fig tree studying scripture. What did Jesus say about him when he came over the hill and Jesus saw Nathaniel and said, ah, there's an Israelite who is blameless, a man of integrity who tells no lies. Does that mean he never had his whole life? Probably not. But what does it mean? This man cares about truth and integrity and being right with all so we'll come back to that next week and go deeper because this is a, a big, big section. We got a big uh, topic. We got about two thirds of the way through it. But let's wrap up with prayer here and come back to this. God, we're excited for this moment to imagine, to picture ourselves, Jesus in the flesh, soon coming King. This is the moment, God. He come, walks into Jerusalem and claims it as his own kingdom and the whole planet as his own kingdom. With 144,000 saved Jews walking along behind, following their lamb. God, moments like this, we long for it. We look forward to it. And um, we're not going to begrudge them being the only ones who can sing that song. They're a special, wonderful people. But boy, are we going to let loose when we get to worship you too. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen.